Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This episode is about Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 anime movie as opposed to the recent live action one. Joining me to talk about the film will be Christopher Bolton. He's an academic who's got a book coming out called Interpreting Anime, which has a chapter in it on Ghost in the Shell. So yeah, fairly obvious why I've invited him on to talk about this film. Before we get into that conversation, just a quick thank you to those of you who've uh, signed up on my Patreon. So thank you very much to Matt, Dan, Mark and Stephen. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Thank you for contributing to help me keep doing this. Uh, I'm not going to go too, uh, on too much about my Patreon in this episode because I did that last time. You don't want to hear me go on about that. So just to say it's patreon.com slash Utopia Horizons if you feel like you'd like to contribute to the podcast and, and help me to keep on doing it. Yeah, I'll leave the begging for iTunes reviews until the end. So, yeah, just to say if you're one of those people who likes to know what's coming up on the podcast so you can watch the film, read the book, whatever, ahead of the episode coming out, the next one will, if not the next one, then still coming soon, will be Martian Time Slip, the Philip K. Dick novel. If you're new to the podcast, I'm doing a kind of mini-series within Utopian Horizons where I'm working my way through every Philip K. Dick novel. So I've done Time Out of Joint, done The Man in the High Castle, and Martian Time Slip is next. Also coming up soon will be an episode on the film Nemesis from 1992. So yeah, that's what's coming up. Now on to my conversation with Christopher about Ghost in the Shell. So joining me now is Christopher Bolton. He's Professor of Comparative and Japanese Literature at Williams College and also author of the upcoming book, Interpreting Anime. Thank you very much for joining me, Christopher. Thank you for having me, Paul. So the fact that Christopher's got a book coming out called Interpreting Anime is relevant to what we'll be talking about today, which is the film Ghost in a Shell, released in 1995 and directed by Mamoru Oshihi. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name. I'm going to attempt a brief plot synopsis before we get into it, just in case anyone listening who, who hasn't seen the film or hasn't seen it recently. So this is a film set in a future of network technology ahead of its time in, in somewhat in terms of what the internet was bringing, being that it came out in 1995. Um, also a future of cyborg technology. The protagonist is called Major Kusanagi and she is a member of Section 9 which is some kind of secretive government organization. I'm not quite sure what the what they are, anti-terrorist or, or something like that. And she has a human brain in a completely artificial cyborg body. Um, I should say everyone at Section 9 has some kind of cybernetic enhancement, whether they're just hooked up to the network for communication or they've got like cyborg eyes. And this technology is not just defined to Section 9. This is something that's part of, of society at large. So they are trying to take down somebody called the Puppet Master, who is a, a terrorist accused of, of multiple crimes and is able to hack the ghosts of his victims in the parlance of the film and in order to get them to do do his bidding. Uh, he's eventually trapped in a cyborg body and we find out that the puppet master is not a person. He's a program who's created by the government to do their bidding and then he went rogue on the net and became self-aware. I say he because that's how they refer to him in the film. And then he, he proposes a union of sorts with Kusanagi in order to reproduce and for them to both become something new and evolve. So that's a brief synopsis of the film. Before we get into it, I thought it might be useful just to ask you if you could tell us a bit about the idea behind your book, because that might provide a bit of context for the kind of approach we'll be taking when discussing the film. Yeah, sure. The book, in brief, it's an introduction to interpreting anime film that uses a comparative approach. So each chapter treats a different feature-length anime film. One chapter is on Ghost in the Shell. Uh, and each chapter juxtaposes that film with a different comparison medium. So in comics or manga, uh, prose fiction, classical or modern stage drama, or live-action film. And the goal of those comparisons is to discover things that anime can do that other media cannot. So the ways it represents the world that are uniquely its own. Okay, interesting. So in regards to, to this film then, and it's kind of utopian or, or not utopian dimensions could you talk a bit about the depiction of the cyborg body in this film uh yeah so i think the major cyborg body is split is portrayed very ambivalently uh in the film it has a kind of power physical strength also grace but oshi has said it in one interview that uh he also intended to portray the limitations of a body 
uh, like this. So, for example, the major's body weighs a tremendous amount when she lands. There's this scene when she jumps and lands on the concrete and kind of creates an impression in it. Um, there's this other memorable scene where she's uh, scuba diving and it's it's described how if a floating device she's wearing fails, her body will just sink to the bottom of the uh, hmm. of the bay. So there's this power and strength and grace on the one hand, but also these kind of limitations, this kind of artificiality uh, on the other hand. And then I think the third piece of that is the viewer's relationship to that body. Mm. So um, she is portrayed as not only strong, but very attractive. She has these kind of superhuman uh, female uh, proportions. And there's a quality of beauty to that body, but also a real quality of, I think, voyeurism mm. uh, for the viewer in watching the film. Um, there's a definite kind of objectification of that body, which is part of the way the female body is portrayed, but also the way that body is portrayed as a machine, as a kind of uh, tool. Yeah, that's right at the beginning of the film, isn't it, where they... So she's got this cloaking device, but in order to use the cloaking device, she has to take her clothes off. So like straight away at the beginning yes. of the film, we have this naked female body. I think, like you said, the voyeurism, like there's a scene of her creation and like the, the way the sort of camera like pans around and like shows off all the, the contours of her body. It's yeah, very voyeuristic, I think. Yes. And so those scenes you've described are juxtaposed. There's the uh, opening scene is followed by that creation scene, which runs uh, in between the credits. Yeah, and then that creation scene, you get to see, you know, not only all her, the outside of her body from all angles, but that the skin it's applied and everything coming together. So it's a kind of leveling up of that, you know, that voyeuristic impulse. Mm. And the scene, the scene that precedes it, that where she uses this cloaking device, she sort of, you see her standing at the top of a tall building with the city spread out beneath her. Uh, she strips off her clothes and then kind of dives off the building. Uh, at the end of a tether and then hangs outside the window to perform this assassination, which opens the film um, and then kind of releases the tether and floats, falls down into the city as she activates the cloaking device and she kind of blurs into the uh, city. So there's a lot going on in that scene with the, uh, the kind of power of standing over the city and then the vulnerability of falling, mm. um, the blending into the city and the nakedness, which kind of transitions to invisibility. I think. Yeah, you're right to highlight that scene because that kind of crystallizes the, the strength and the vulnerability, the sort of power and ephemerality of that cyborg body. Mm. Could you talk a bit about, so there's it's Donna Haraway wrote a very famous essay called Cyborg Manifesto, which is something that's been talked about a lot in relation to this film. It's something that you, you talk about in your book. Indeed, something I'd forgotten until I read that chapter in your book is there's actually a character called Haraway in the second film. So I think even even yes. they must be aware of that relationship in some way. So could you just explain a bit about what Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto is about and how that relates to, to this film? Yeah, so the um, this essay by Donna Haraway dates from the mid-'80s. It's republished in a book she published in 91. So it's very much part of this kind of um, academic and cultural zeitgeist of the time a few years before Ghost in the Shell comes out. And as you alluded to, you could sort of argue about whether Oshi had these specific ideas in mind when he made the film, um, or whether he kind of picked them up later to include in the second film where Haraway appears as a kind of cameo as a character herself. But I think one thing you can say is that, you know, the film sort of captured the imagination of academic critics in the same way that Haraway's essay had, and the two became very, I think, closely associated, kind of working together. And it's really Ghost in the Shell, I think, that um, catapulted anime into the attention of North American uh, and Western academics uh, right around the mid-90s. the mid So it's the way the film works with this essay uh, that I think is in some ways the kind of origin of academic uh, criticism. Uh, but you asked about the, the content of Haraway's essay. So Haraway's essay takes some of the kind of, uh, well, let's see, let's back up a minute to what we were saying about Kusanagi's own relationship to her cyborg body. I think those ideas of a kind of alienation from the body that we were alluding to, that the body seems awkward or doesn't seem to kind of fit or it's, it's attached to the brain mm. kind of arbitrarily. In the film, Kusanagi seems to regard her own body as a kind of alien thing. You can see in, 
in various scenes or, or just in the way she kind of carries herself that she doesn't really seem, in fact, seem to be a part of her. There's a scene at the very beginning of the film, right after the opening credits, where she wakes up and she opens her eyes and kind of looks at her hand um, as if it were a kind of thing apart. Yeah. So these ideas, I think, that about the relationship between the mind and the body and that the, the body is a kind of constructed thing have a kind of interesting resonance with you know, post-structuralist theory, the kind that Haraway uh, was uh, working with, this idea that the, even our bodies, ourselves certainly, and even our physical bodies are kind of texts um, which we can read or reread or write or rewrite um, that are somehow kind of assembled for us uh, from the language in the world that's around us and that we assemble for ourselves from our own language. These are some of the kind of things that um, Haraway is working with in a kind of uh, third-wave feminism, sometimes called cyborg feminism or, or cyberfeminism, which it uses the figure of the cyborg to undermine some of the dichotomies, the naturalized dichotomies that we think of when describing our own bodies and our own genders. So male, female, uh, natural, artificial, biological, mechanical, or physical, linguistic. I guess the last one would be bounded, the kind of bounded body versus a dispersed or networked um, body. Um, and that sounds very uh, kind of fictional or science fictional, but for Haraway, those kind of metaphors mapped very directly onto problems of political agency and feminism at the time she was writing. So um, the desire to kind of undermine a naturalized notion of biological sex in favor of a more flexible, um, rewritable, writable, textual notion of gender is is where those kind of cyborg metaphors intersect with the kind of um, feminism that she was interested in uh, advancing. In the same way, the idea that we're sort of individual uh, embodied or bounded subjects versus the idea that we're part of a kind of network uh, for example, a social network or a political network of people that could act together. Those were also some of the um, dichotomies that she's playing with in using this image of the cyborg to uh, to bring into focus. But it was very much a kind of divided metaphor for Haraway as well. We just talked about the divided quality of this in the film. Yeah. I think um, Haraway says the cyborg is the offspring of militarism and patriarchal capitalism. It has a kind of origin in this um, fantasy of military and physical empowerment, a kind of super soldier fantasy, which you also see in the film. Her interest was, I think she sees this as a kind of dominant narrative, which she will inhabit and subvert from within. She says in one interview, we're in the belly of the beast and we have to argue from, from there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's taking these kind of uh, patriarchal or even sort of fascist uh, narratives of the super body and kind of reconfiguring them into a new kind of flexible notion of uh, gender and and networked uh, political agency. Mm. It's really interesting, like how closely that essay and this film mirror each other, really. Because, yes. So, so she obviously, as you've said, she sees the cyborg as being like a potential source of, uh, you might say, power or liberation, um, in the sense that because it's blurring boundaries, that leaves us in a state of uncertainty where we can kind of find new find new directions but yeah it is also clearly the, the cyborg comes from uh, the offspring of militarism and patriarchal capitalism as you said and that's literally in the film kusanagi's body is produced by a corporation called megatech it's owned by section nine and there's this idea in the film like she's technically free to leave section nine whenever she wants but all the members of section nine are aware that bits of them are owned owned by them and they will have to give those bits back um, yes. I think uh, think even they'll have to give their classified memories back as well, which yes. leaves Kusanagi in this state of wondering. So yeah, obviously she has this powerful body; she can do these amazing things. But she's also very aware, like she's she's thinking these these cyborg parts are now a part of me. This this memory is now a part of me. What do I have left if I give it back? Exactly. And so the the question is, you know, how do you escape from that situation? What does escape consist of? In that situation, can you or would you want to escape from your own body or from some part of your own uh, brain? Mm. And so there's sort of two solutions given in the film. One is in the title, this idea of the ghost, which you alluded to in, in your description of the plot. Mm. And the ghost is in some, some kind of 
part of the brain or personality which is beyond duplication, beyond intervention, a kind of something between uh, the brain and the soul, which a, a robot would not have, which only the human part of her has. And so some no notion of a kind of deep self within this artificial body that can never be invaded, though the puppet master threatens to kind of hack even these, these ghosts. And then on the other hand, there's this uh, the kind of solution of the film's uh, climax where uh, she in some senses does kind of escape this mechanical body um, entirely in a resolution that could be kind of ecstatic and optimistic or it could be very violent and frightening. It kind of depends on how you how you view it. Yeah, just talk about the, the ending then. So um, as I mentioned in when I was trying to give a synopsis, the puppet master proposes this this union with Kusanagi. So he's he's trapped in this body. They end up together, both in like torn apart, semi-destroyed bodies. And he they will I mean it's kind of vague what will happen, but the, the idea is that they yeah. will merge in some way. They will both become something new and they will release their offspring into the internet effectively. So yeah, it's it, this she, this does effectively allow her to escape the to overcome her limitations in some way, right? Because she escapes from section nine. They believe she's dead after this, and she has become something new. Yeah. So the the ending really revolves around this notion of embodiment versus disembodiment. Uh, the puppet master, as you said, originates as a kind of intelligent computer uh, program, um, and then in the course of the film, he downloads himself or is downloaded into this uh, cyber body, uh, which then ends up um, sort of, it's a female body, and it ends up kind of dismembered, half destroyed, lying next to the major's body, which is also um, kind of ravaged in this, the, the final um, battle of the climax. So these two kind of dismembered uh, female bodies are lying there on the ground next to each other, wired up uh, by Kusanagi's partner, and that's at that point that the puppet master kind of proposes this scheme of embodiment to Kusanagi, that she could escape this cyborg body entirely. And it's even implied, you know, maybe escape her own brain um, and become this kind of floating consciousness on the net as the puppet master uh, started out. And then there's, there's a kind of long um, speech where he lays out to her the kind of his case for the, this idea that this is a utopian um, existence. But at the same time, the viewer inevitably feels, I think, this kind of ambivalence or sadness that, you know, Kusanagi's body, almost destroyed, will now be become sort of vacated forever. Mm. It's like a death. Yeah. It's something I, I think you do quite well in the in the chapter in the book, actually, as well, is, is to sort of talk about, you can read the scene in like lots of different ways, and they all seem equally plausible. Yeah. You, so, in a sense, we have like so she's able to define herself in in this scene rather than being owned by Section Nine and um, you know having her having her existence sort of laid out for her. She's able to choose to become something new, and then there's, there are new possibilities for her. So you you can read something utopian in, in that depiction of of the cyborg. Um, yeah, also, you say like so. This is the, in your book. You said the plot and visual structure of Oshii's film seem divided between voyeuristic obsession with the heroine's physical body and the promise of discarding that body to enter a world of of pure data. So yeah, there, there's that contradiction there. You know, this her body is is kind of as something that is is owned in the sense of a, a voyeuristic product, like something to look at. Um, yeah. And you talk about how you can actually read this scene as sort of a a reinscription of traditional gender roles as well. Yeah, I think there, um, by the time I was writing on this film, there were already uh, readings out there. Susan Napier has a, a prominent reading of the film that that union is a kind of marriage union, mm. and so a kind of reinscription re of traditional gender roles. So that's kind of queered by the fact that the puppet master is in this female body. Yeah. Um, although it speaks with a kind of male uh, male voice. Yeah, I think it's... Not insignificant that he speaks to them, I think, is it? And they they would say him even after they know it's an AI. So, yeah, like I say, it is, it is, he is in a female body, but at the same time, it feels like the film is suggesting that he's male. Yeah, 
Now, we, we should perhaps mention here that our listeners may have seen uh, different versions of this film. Mm. Um, and we are talking about the original 1995 uh, release. Yes. There is a kind of uh, reboot of the film several years later called Ghost in the Shell 2.0. And in that one, they replace uh, the male voice of the puppet master with a female voice. Ah, okay. And... Sort of coincidentally, the the voice actress who does that female voice is the same one who voices the Haraway character in the sequel, uh, which is not Ghost in the Shell 2.0, but Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence uh, from 2004. So there's several um, films listeners might have seen. But yeah, in the original 1995 film, there is this kind of striking scene of the male voice kind of coming out of the female body, or it's actually projected from the female body through kusanagi's vocal cords and comes out as male uh, anyway so there's a, a kind of layered quality to the, the gender and the voices and personalities in the film mm. so how would you go about there's also obviously different ways to read the fact that after this union happens she ends up like with her head on a child's body i mean do, what how would you, how would you approach that how would you read that yeah so um in this uh climactic scene her her body is kind of destroyed by uh enemy agents kind of at the moment that she forges this deal with the puppet master um and so there's some suspense of where she, where she really is has she ascended to the net has she been destroyed um when the body is uh, destroyed uh, but it turns out that her her partner uh, bateau recovers her head the only thing that remains from the original body and it contains her brain and he sort of transplants that into a new cyborg body. And so in the last scene, we see her kind of wake up in this new body, and it's the body of a child. So I think the, yeah, as you say, you could read that either way as a kind of innocence, as an even kind of escaping this kind of playboy body that she's inhabited mm. through most of the film, and a kind of desexualization of the body, which, which could be positive. Mm. There's the obvious thing of being reborn as well. Yeah, exactly. Or you could also see it as a kind of infantilization where she's kind of reduced to progressively more disempowered uh, statuses. Um, that The final scene where she wakes up in the uh, body and kind of sees herself in a mirror and you realize that you're seeing through her eyes uh, and then she kind of slowly recovers herself within this uh, body and finally begins speaking not in the child's voice, but in the Kusanagi voice that we've been uh, familiar with. It's a very artful scene, even though it may seem like a kind of just uh, afterthought to the, mm. the climax. But a, a lot goes on in that scene. I think it's important for how we read the character's fate. Yeah, and like you say, in terms of being stripped down, I should say like that scene, that action scene, sort of climaxes with her like trying to rip the lid of a tank off, and her body like becomes like somehow becomes like ridiculously uh, muscular. And then kind yeah. of tears apart. And like you say, it's like it's gradually like stripping down into like obviously she's naked by now because she has to use the camo. So yes. uh, and then it's like yeah, you know, gradually then she's she's like in half, then a head shot off, and then she's a child. So yeah, you could yeah, you can see you can read it as that stripping away of, of like her power almost as well. Yeah, but at the same time she as she's kind of trying to pry the lid off this tank, it's sort of implied that it's she herself who tears her body apart. Yeah. But she kind of strains it to the point where her arm, you know, flies off. And so there is this, and it's accompanied by this very kind of eerie score by, you know, this brilliant composer, Kawaii Kenji, who works with Oshi, which kind of tamps down the effect of the scene so that it's both kind of beautiful and horrible at the same time. And at the same time, we feel kind of detached from that body as it's ripped apart in slow motion so I, I think even that scene you can read as a violence that's done to her body or as herself destroying her own body like you know kind of tearing her own skin off and leaving and leaving that body so even that scene has this kind of divided quality sure um so something you do in the book is you compare ghost in a shell with japanese puppet theater could you briefly explain what Japanese puppet theatre is, first of all, for people who don't know, and then can you explain why you make that comparison and uh, what you sort of try to get out of that? Yeah, well, this gets to the approach of the uh, book overall, as I said, which is a kind of media comparative approach, you know, juxtaposing each film 
with a different comparison medium. So in this case, I chose um, puppet theater, but maybe I should motivate this idea of media comparison a little bit uh, to begin with. I, I think, you know, we've been talking about the divided quality of this this final scene, which just sums up a kind of divided quality about the cyborg body throughout the film. And I think as you alluded to, it's very difficult to choose between these readings, the kind of a positive and negative uh, reading, the reading of her as objectified and the reading of her as, as liberated. I think one reason it's so hard to choose, it will remain hard to choose as long as uh, we sort of remain focused on the plot, mm-hmm. the, the things that happen in the plot and the story. I think finally to kind of move beyond that impasse or that ambiguity, you need to look at uh, the formal elements of the film, sort of how does anime portray the body and how does that portrayal differ from other media? So mm. an obvious comparison might be live action film. There's a, a live action version of Ghost in the Shell released very recently. But uh, in the book, I chose uh, puppet theater, which is a, a pre-modern Japanese art form that originates around the uh, 17th century. Um, in Japan. You can still see it in Japan today, but the plays that are performed today are largely plays from the 17th, 18th, and uh, 19th century. And the reason that it grows up uh, around this time, around 1700 in Japan, is because that's a time of increasing urbanization and the growth of uh, big uh, urban centers like uh, Tokyo, which was then called um, Edo. So this period, in fact, from around 1600 to the mid-19th century is called the Edo period, for the growth of this huge uh, metropolis is today Tokyo. And the the things that that urban, the kinds of arts that that urban center supported that had not been supported up to then were basically what today we would think of as popular culture, um, the kind of mass culture uh, that was shown in popular theaters and supported itself with admissions from common, common kind of people. And so actually it has a lot in, despite um, being a, uh, uh, you know, 300 years old, it has a lot in common with contemporary popular culture. It appealed to the kind of average person. The plot involved a lot of um, violence, uh, a lot of sex. Um, there were at the time a lot of kind of strong women characters in these plays, even as they were kind of constrained by the gender roles of the time. And uh, formally, in terms of the visuals of the puppet theater, there are a lot of kind of special effects um, that revolve around things that the puppet bodies can do uh, that uh, human bodies or human actors uh, couldn't, often related to kind of violent climaxes where the puppets clash or are killed or sometimes even um, dismembered on stage. It's quite, I was watching someone, I had a look on YouTube because I hadn't seen it before. It's like quite different to puppets that we are familiar with in, in the West. Typ- they seem to be a lot bigger typically and they're operated... Is it always three people that operate them? Yeah. Um, in the kind of final evolution of the puppet theater in the 18th and 19th century and the, the version that's preserved today, the puppets are about half life size. So maybe three feet uh, tall, one meter tall. And um, they're operated by three operators who are in plain view on the stage. So uh, the primary operator will uh, manipulate the puppet's head and the right arm, and the secondary operator will manipulate just the left arm, and the third will um, manipulate the kind of lower body or the feet. Uh, so the kind of agency or movement or the body of the puppet is divided between three human bodies. And then at the same time, all the voices for all the puppets on stage are voiced by one person, a kind of chanter, who, who sits to the right of the stage, is accompanied by a stringed instrument, the shamisen, and he will do the voices for all the puppets at once. So this um, division of the puppets' movement into three different people, and then the combining of all the puppets' voices into one human voice, well, Western uh, commentators uh, looking at the puppet theater, for example, have been struck by this kind of redistribution of, of roles, of bodily agency and of vocal agency and have seen in that a kind of gesture which we could compare to what Donna Haraway is doing. A notion that, you know, perhaps we don't own, perhaps we don't own our own bodies, but the, uh, they are kind of parceled out under the control of different forces. Uh, perhaps we don't own our voices, but we share them just as, you know, you and I share a language. 
um, we share our voices uh, w- with someone else. And so this mm. kind of redefinition of the subject or resegmenting of the subject has caused some commentators to see in the puppet theater an emblem uh, which is very much like Haraway's emblem of the cyborg. So do you also see sort of some connection there in terms of anime, like the artificiality of anime? Is that significant as well? Yeah, I think very much. And I should note maybe that, um, you know, for listeners who think this might be a little bit of a stretch, that, um, you know, just as some people are skeptical that Oshi had Haraway in mind, um, they may be skeptical about this the, the puppet theater comparison, but there are also some very explicit references to the puppet theater in the film. So in that scene that we were talking about where the two ravaged bodies are kind of there on the ground connected by these cords, this is could be a very explicit reference to the climax of these puppet uh, puppet theater productions. There's a, a genre of puppet plays called The Love Suicide, which end very much in this way, with the two lovers kind of bound together by a sash um, committing suicide together so that they can be kind of escape their social obligations. You know, one might be a, a prostitute and the other might be a merchant and they, they can't be together in life. So they kill themselves. And in the social context of the time, this is in some ways a kind of it's a tragic, but also in some ways an optimistic gesture because there's the sense that they will escape their social obligations and be reborn in the next life together. And that sounds very much like the climax of a ghost in the shell that we were talking about, right? The, mm. the trade-off between escaping the body, uh, joining with another, attaining some kind of new uh, existence on the other side. Uh, and there is, in fact, a line in that final scene where um, Bateau, Kusanagi's partner, who's kind of wired her together with the puppet theater, says something like, uh, if you get in trouble, I'm carrying you out of here. I'm not about to be involved in a love suicide with this mm. thing. So there are very, um, I think, some very kind of explicit references to the puppet theater, which again are, are carried forward in the, the sequel, Innocence, where this idea of the puppet and Kusanagi inhabiting a puppet body just is kind of um, multiplied and, and leveled up. So I guess that was a digression to kind of motivate this idea of the comparison. But I should just say as well, something I, something I forgot to mention that you mentioned there in terms of puppetry is uh, probably worth mentioning that he in that scene he sort of takes control of Kusanagi's like mouth as well he like speaks through her which in terms of what we were talking about earlier is reading the you know as a problematic in terms of gender roles that's another thing that's worth mentioning he literally kind of takes control of her so um yeah sorry but yeah go sorry it's like that ventriloquism and then you know just to stick with that a minute longer there's what he what he says you know, using her mouth, there's a long speech where he kind of lays out this promise of a new existence. And uh, the the film has many long speeches, which kind of alternate with these action scenes. It's a kind of quality of the film that some people love and other people, I think, lose patience with. But <laughs> if this were a puppet play, the love suicide at the very end is also preceded by a very long, flowery narrative section which will be recited by the, given by the reciter. Um, and it's kind of the most flowery part of the play's language. Um, and it will kind of rehearse this suicide ahead of time in very literary terms with a lot of punning, uh, wordplay, literary metaphors. It's called the Michiyuki. And you can even see the puppet master's final speech as a kind of Michiyuki. So even the structure mm-hmm. of the narrative kind of mirrors this, um, this play. And, the quality of the Michiyuki gets to the question that you asked uh, that got us started on this about the artificiality of the puppet body. I should maybe take one more step back and say, I think my motive for this comparison, comparing anime with the puppet theater, was, as I said, to see some of the formal quality, to draw our attention to some of the formal qualities of anime and how it represents the world. I think I was a little bit impatient with some readings of the film that try to see Kusanagi as either a feminist character or an anti-feminist character, again, based just on the plot. And also, I think, based on the idea that this is a kind of realistic drama, that we should see her as a kind of real woman or the analog to a real woman and kind of project a psychology onto her actual political situation that mirrors our own when for me, the character, a cyborg character, is already a very kind of virtual, only semi-human being. And then when you animate that, you're just layering these layers of fiction or representation 
on top of one another. And I think any reading of the film's politics has to see this artificial or highly represented quality of, of the body. And looking at the puppet theater, I think, helps us um, see this because the, the puppets undergo these terrible fates or these kind of heartbreaking or heartbreakingly sad or heartbreakingly joyful scenes in the course of the play. But there's always a kind of artificial quality to the, uh, the puppets. Or actually, I should say, the viewer kind of oscillates back and forth between a total involvement with these puppets as almost as if they were real people, a total suspension of disbelief in which you can get into their trials and tribulations. That's one side of the oscillation. And then you kind of flip out of that to notice the puppeteers who, again, are standing on the stage in full view, or the chanter who's doing all the voices, and really focus on the performed quality of the play. Um, and this moving back and forth between a kind of total involvement in the characters in their story and then a kind of total detachment in which you just admire the play as an aesthetic object or as a kind of virtuoso performance. That oscillation to me is very similar to the oscillation that I think many viewers feel when they watch anime, where you're kind of sucked into the, the violence or the eroticism or the ad adventurous quality of the story and the visuals, and then you kind of flip out to think, wow, that is an amazing piece of animation. How did they do that? So I think that oscillation between the artificial and the natural, which in some ways mirrors um, Haraway's original critical gesture, um, the puppet theater pulls that into focus for us, the, 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 the way the visuals enact that in anime. And then you start to notice things like the way the major's body moves. It moves very much uh, like a puppet in some ways, kind of uh, dangled from strings or uh, thrown through the air or, um, you know, suspended in uh, space. I'll give you one concrete example. The puppets, since they're just three-foot dolls um, in the puppet theater, can be kind of thrown across the stage with real violence. Um, the manipulator can kind of fling them here and there. And it, it gives them a sense of, it's a kind of poignant image of being blown by the winds of fate. And it's a, it's a very violent image, but also a kind of artificial image. They don't look quite real in those moments. Um, and I think you see very much the way Kusanagi's body, the animators move Kusanagi's body is very similar. She is kind of both very heavy and very light, um, both very substantial in the sense that we see her as a, as a human and also kind of insubstantial or ephemeral. Um, in which she seems to be in some some moments kind of just a, a breath of air being blown here or there. Mm. So this sort of theme of the artificial and the natural is kind of inherently within the form of anime itself. I think so, yeah. I think you see some variation of that in a lot of the most interesting anime by a lot of the most um, creative directors and certainly by, in films by Oshii. So uh, I just I wanted to talk some more about the kind of the some of the philosophical implications of the film because obviously we, it is in some ways like literally about the cyborg body and the questions that raise, but it also is talking about you know we are living in an increasingly networked networked world. We're living in a reality that's increasingly infused with images and, and technology and so on. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff about this blurring of, of boundaries and positive elements of that but obviously a, also a kind of existential terror like this idea of not being unable to tell between reality and fantasy yes um i think the for me the scene that's kind of most obviously about that is the garbage truck scene and like the aftermath of that perhaps yes. you could tell us a bit about that thing uh, so let's see um early in the film one of the good guys is being hacked by the puppet master over uh, the network that is her, her brain is actually being invaded uh, or penetrated by this uh, the puppet master as hacker and I think Kusanagi and her uh, team are trying to kind of trace the route through which that hacking is occurring and they find out that this garbage truck driver kind of pawn in the whole thing is kind of logging in on payphones in the course of his route and that somehow establishes the the network route into mm. uh, the victim so they they go out and kind of track down the bad guys who are, are doing this but when they bring them back to headquarters uh, they discover that the garbage truck driver he thought he was doing something entirely uh, different 
his motive for doing that had to do with his family, but all this whole story, including the whole story of his family, is just implanted in his head as an artificial memory. Mm. That's really kind of tragic scene, isn't it? Like you have, there's two criminals, it's the one they, they catch and he says, he says, I'm not going to tell you anything. And they're kind of like, was, you don't even know your name. And then he realizes like he doesn't know who he is. And they start asking him, can you remember your mother's face? Can you tell me one thing from your childhood? And he's just, what's well, blank expression. And as you say, the garbage truck driver, he's just like complete sap he was just thought he was as you say thought he was doing something completely different he's got he's got a photo that he tried to show to his colleague of his daughter and they they show it to him again and it's just him by himself and it's like really the way it's shot as well and like the expression on his face it's you feel you really feel sorry for him like he's he's left with this story in his head it doesn't go anywhere and it's really tragic idea that he's this um breaking of the boundary sort of between technological and the, and the natural is left in a position where he doesn't know but what reality is, it's a, yeah, I think it's a really poignant scene, actually. Yeah, right. So the, the issue there is uh, about memory and, you know, whether, for example, we might kind of think that our bodies are not an inherent part of ourselves, but our minds are. And memory is a, a, a part of that. But if a memory can be created or implanted um, or artificial, uh, then again, where does the, where does your humanity finally uh, reside and, and here I think you know Blade Runner is a big, uh, which you've talked about before on this uh, mm-hmm. podcast, is a big uh, inspiration for Oshi. It comes out um, about ten years right before this uh, film, and also thematizes this idea of the artificial memory versus the artificial uh, body. Yeah, so I think that that idea that our brains themselves will become networked or hacked is the final kind of dystopian possibility that the, the film raises. Mm. And it, that extends to, it kind of maps it out as like a point of no return because once the, they obviously see that happen to these people and Bato, who we've mentioned, he says to the chief, do you ever worry about the neurosurgeons who tinker around in your in your brain? He says, there's no no end once you start wondering. And Kusanagi herself, she says, how do I know I haven't died before and I've been put in a new body? How do I know I ever existed before? There's this idea that, yeah, kind of like I said, the existential terror that like nothing's guaranteed once these boundaries have been broken in some way, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, for me, looking at these films from the, you know, the 80s, uh, the 90s, and their kind of utopian or dystopian um, hopes and fears, they still seem very evocative. I think Ghost in the Shell still is still a great film and it still watches really well all these years later. But there is an element to all these scenarios, which is kind of off the mark, you know, 25 years later, which is that, you know, these fears uh, of kind of human robots that would challenge the notion of the human body, and also kind of implanted thoughts or perfect virtuality scenarios that would challenge the notion of human experience. None of those have really come about, but what we are faced with is a network of social media where mm. we're all kind of creating virtual selves, which we then upload onto a different platform, which then represent us and kind of interact with other uh, virtual selves in a way which I think is, you know, every bit as enabling and every bit as dehumanizing mm. uh, as some of these kind of more physical um, scenarios of the of the, the steel body or the, the positronic brain. So I think that's one thing that none of these films really saw coming, that we would all kind of voluntarily upload these new selves in a kind of act of creation, which is also a corporate, it's corporate in both senses of that word, right? It's communal um, and social, but it's also sponsored by big companies who have their own frameworks and their own um, agendas. So now I see films like Ghost in the Shell as a kind of metaphor for social media, a metaphor that works really well, but which is, you know, translates the threats into different kind of language. Mm. I mean, in terms of thinking about sort of the boundaries of, of reality blurring, I wonder if it might be represented perhaps in a in a better way or more, more relevant way in the kind of the way the, the city's represented. So there's a particularly... 
memorable scene in there which is in the middle of the film i don't like it doesn't really serve like a, a narrative purpose but it's just kind of a contemplative scene set to music of different shots of the city and like there's a lot of stuff in there not just in that scene like there's a lot of bits where the characters are surrounded by information in some way usually in, in terms of signs like in the in the chase scene we've already mentioned there's a shot of the character and, it, and he's all completely surrounded by signs in that scene there's a lot of reflections like of, of glass and uh water like yeah this idea of like replication of, of different like, i think kusanagi sees like a, a doppelganger of herself in a window which yes. is not really explained it's completely you can say this is just a, a random scene and not random but you know it's it's apart from everything else and she sees herself in a window which you would think would be significant but it's not like commented on it's not clear whether that's imagined or it's yeah. it's suggesting that there are other versions of her or so yeah i think there's at least this sense of confusion and alienation in the city or you can read it as the city is like a, a metaphor for this place we're in surrounded by like information and images and and reflections and so on yeah that's a that's a good point i think well she says in um one place that those images that you uh, listed up of the city are intended to make the notion of a computer network more understandable and more palpable. Mm -hmm. This is 1995, so it's before the growth of the kind of consumer uh, internet, especially yeah. in Japan. Um, and I think when the film first comes out, there's this notion that the idea of an electronic network is not even intuitive um, to a lot of the viewers. And so she says something about representing it with the wires that cross the city skyline or as you said, this kind of mad signage, which is all over the, the city or the reflections in the, in the window. Today, of course, that idea of the network is very intuitive to us. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, you're right to, to call attention to the ways that a city is already a network is maybe speaks to what I said uh, before that it is not all about science fiction fantasies of a hydraulic body. Mm. Um, there is also a sense in which he realizes that, yeah, the city already um, this kind of networked uh, space that even an ordinary person moving through the city uh, might see a duplicate of themselves, right? Wearing the same clothes or, mm -hmm. and, and realize the ways that the cities, the social space, this modern technologized space produces us. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a nice reading of that scene. Yeah. Okay. Well, just sort of um, bring, bring everything to a conclusion. Um, I think we've already suggested that this question might be difficult to answer, but to what extent do you think of Ghost in a Shell as being utopian or, or a technophilic or technophobic reading of whatever you, however you want to read it, cyber bodies, networks, futures? So I, I think the way I would answer that would come back to the medium of anime itself. Yeah, everything that we've said suggests that the energy of the film and the interest of the film really resides in this ambiguity between mm. the utopian and the dystopian, um, as you said, the technophilic or the technophobic. Um, and that divided quality is really what gives the film energy and interest today. I think if it fell purely on one side or the other of that line, it would not be as interesting um, to watch. What I think is utopian about the film, and the reason I think I would finally see it as a an optimistic work, has to do with what for me is the utopian quality of ambiguity itself. Um, mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, no, um, no. the idea that the future is not set. That's right. That, and that um, our own identities, our own subjectivities are not firmly delineated, but, but flexible in some way, um, uncertain. For me, utopia exists in that kind of, at least in, in literary terms, utopia exists in that kind of ambivalence in the ambiguity of representation itself. So, if we're not quite sure how to read Kusanagi, that's a sign of the flexibility of language, of anime language, of anime representation, including language that represents the body, and, you know, and maybe even the language that represents and makes up our bodies, our subjectivities, our ourselves. So I think some tend to see a kind of destabilizing threat in that uncertainty, but I tend to see uh, a possibility. In that sense, I think whether or not the plot the plot of Ghost in the Shell is utopian. I definitely see anime as a medium that embodies utopian possibilities, I think, by its very mode of representation. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, th I think 
I think there's something appealing in this idea that there's that you can find utopianism in these like fissures, like there's these gaps and boundaries. Like even though, as as you know, going back to Haraway, the, the cyborgs produced by capitalism and and so on, it crosses a boundary, and that ambiguity in that boundary opens up sort of unexpected uh, possibilities, which I, I think is is um, quite powerful. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I like your image of a utopianism that exists in the cracks or fissures. That's a nice way to put it. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me, Chris. We're good to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Um, and I should say, for anybody who's uh, interested in more about this, as I said, uh, there is a chapter on Ghost and Shell in the book Christopher has coming out called Interpreting Anime, which is coming out when? Uh, around February 20th. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're interested, then um, Google that and uh, have a look for that. There's a website for the book that's up now called interpretinganime.org. So people who want to find out a little bit more about the book in advance uh, of the publication, uh, welcome to point their browser there. Ah, there you go. Okay, thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. So that's the end of my conversation with Christopher. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if so. At this point in the podcast, I usually beg people to give me iTunes reviews. That doesn't seem to work. So instead, I will say, if you like this podcast, perhaps you can think of someone you know who might also enjoy it. So if you could recommend it to them, that would be great. Maybe you could tweet about it. I'm at Utopian Horizons on Twitter. If you want to find me on there, that would be cool. Also, if you've got any thoughts on anything I've covered in the episode, any um, questions, points that you think I've missed, feel free to email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. It'd be cool to read out any thoughts that people have, address any questions. Um, That'd be particularly good for the Philip K. Dick episodes because I'm doing those solo as opposed to having guests. So, you know, having another perspective from people would be good for that. Whether that's one of the books I've already covered, that doesn't matter. It's not too late to to talk about stuff from previous episodes. So, yeah, if you've got something on time out of joint on The Man in the High Castle, send it my way. Or, um, as I said, Martian Time Slip's coming up. So if you've got um, any thoughts on that, then it'd be good to hear those too. I don't think there's anything else to say. Recommend the podcast to someone give you an iTunes review if you've got time. And as I said, I should be back soon with an episode, probably on Martian Time Slip and then Nemesis. So I hope you will return for that. Thank you for listening.